Recorded live. Hello, this is Michael Adams, Nothing But the Truth. Uh, one man's journey to find it. It is April the 23rd, 2015. Um, I'm going to try to attempt to uh, listen to part five of Babylonian Woe, read by Gordon Comstock. And then afterwards, I'm thinking about, uh, I can't think, of, I, I can't figure out the name of the show. It's on TalkShoe, apparently. Um, something afternoon commute, afternoon commute, something like that, with somebody or another. I don't know. Anyways, uh, Dave McGowan's on it, and he does a, that's a great interview. These guys did a good job. They asked uh, some very poignant questions, and then, of course, they just let uh, Dave roll with it. Uh, and um, as far as last night's show, folks, I just want to express my gratitude for Keith, and, uh, of course, in the previous show with uh, with Gordon, and I apologize, folks, for all the times you might hear me laughing during the show, um, I guess just part of who I am, maybe it's part of being with the, from the part of the country that I'm from, but uh, not too used to having somebody just lay it out the way it is, just telling us the truth and uh, sparing us with all the the B the BS is out there. So and uh, anyway, for me, I just had a great time last night. It's nice to listen to folks who uh, speak their mind, and not only that, but they're you can recognize it, at least I can that they're uh, speaking the truth, the best of their ability. And uh, I had a great time last night. So, anyways, before we get started here, I guess we'll look at. Uh, like, like I said, I don't know. Maybe you probably will catch it in the end or the beginning of the recording with um, Dave McGowan. These, these guys they did a good job. They really did. Um, I don't know their show. Never followed it. But they did a good job. And uh, they really... Uh, and, of course, Dave always does a good job. So, But you're going to listen to a whole bunch of things and uh, make you think. So... Anyways, uh, yahoo.com. Let's see what was going on here. And let's see, uh, look at Article 5. It looks like uh, Cardinal George visitation continues Wednesday at Holy Name Cathedral. So they've been going at that over and over again, like it's the biggest news that ever happened. And why is it such a big news? Why is a cardinal? I mean, you should see the video and everything. You think it was royalty, and apparently. To be a cardinal in uh, Chicago or, or any of the major cities of to, in Ohio, excuse me, in the United States, is a big deal. You are a big shot. <laughs> it's not just Baltimore or uh, St. Louis or New York or uh, Washington D.C., but you know Chicago. So, who would have thought? Of course. You do a little research about Yahoo, you realize that the past couple of CEOs have been strong connections with the Catholic Church. So, uh, here we go. AFP, uh, number of British women becoming nuns hits 25 year high. Wow. Just keep on hearing things over and over and over again about how Rome is dominating uh, the mother country. Uh, uh, England and um, it's turning it out that maybe that is the case. 
International Business Times, the U.S. must immediately stop Muslim immigration and crush ISIS, demands Christian leader uh, Franklin Graham. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, you know, he's making, a, he's making a name for himself and a living. Um, uh, definitely, I don't recommend you following a man like that. <clears throat> of course, he's the son of Billy Graham. Uh, Pope meets French Vatican envoy nominee at Center of Gay Speculation, Reuters. Uh, hmm. A lot of things about uh, yeah, Utah lawmakers invokes Mormon's prophet, grandpa, and medical pot plea. Uh, a, Utah, a Utah state senator has invoked the legacy of his Mormon prophet grandfather in a video in which he describes almost overdosing on prescription opiates and vows to reintroduce some kind of draconian law, I imagine. Then we got, uh, these people found have, uh, oh no, excuse me, that's not it. Uh, AFP, once again, Arab, Israelis, mourn as Jews celebrate statehood. And I would like to put Jews in quotations, so... <clears throat> Anything else here worth thoroughly? There was quite a bit more stuff. Um, nurtured by the church, keep these immigrants eagerly await Pope. Um. I don't know, folks. Pope Francis will visit Cuba before his trip uh, to the United States, Huffington Post. And then if you notice, I'm skipping all the little sensational stuff, the fear-mongering and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know how much further I want to go, with this, go down this. Um, so, yeah... You know, as we're learning from this Babylonian woe, that the connection between the priest class and the bankers, the money changers, is profound. Um, like Keith talked yesterday about the money shaving and uh, or the shaving of the, the silver coins, um, and how they use this uh, well, yeah, fiat currency, this whole funny, phony money thing, you know, where they never have enough to actually back up your bank account. If you want to, if everyone were to, in this country, withdraw their bank account, you know, their money from their bank accounts, and there would not be enough there for them, amazingly. <laughs> and this whole thing about all you need is one, for one dollar for every ten dollars to loan out. Uh, we live in an insane world. We live in, in La La Land, don't we? We really do. And somehow it works. Uh, and it's just based on fantasy. And we're just... Um, I don't know what it is that... I guess it's its indoctrination. I really do believe a big part of it is. 
Um, here's another one. The Vatican makes peace with American Catholic nuns. Pope Francis seeks harmony between visiting the U.S. and fall. Before visiting the U.S. and fall. <laughs> I imagine he doesn't want to be hearing nuns protesting about how they treat them and um, all the other atrocities that go on. Anyways, I got a picture of him and Obama there just having a good old time. Uh, what was it talking about? Um, yeah, the priest class and the bankers and how they've pretty much been controlling and manipulating us and how uh, about indoctrination. You know, this is something that I have become acutely aware of and keenly aware of, if you will, because of being raised Mormon in a cult. And people will say, oh, my must be terrible. That's terrible that you were raised in a cult. Well, by the way, I don't know anybody on the planet who isn't. And particularly in this country, you count on the fact that you've been raised in a cult. Thanks to the public school system, uh, television, internet, video games, your church. Uh, It goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Um, You know, very few of us uh, have the opportunity to really speak our mind. And once again, this was such a joy to listen to uh, Keith and I know I, I didn't behave very professionally as far as somebody who has a show. But then again, I never said I was professional. I'm just a guy having a show, that documenting and sharing with you my journey of finding the truth. But um, to take it for what it's worth and uh, shouldn't be that much worth to you in the first place. So um, as far as me, Mike Adams, is concerned. Um but yeah, you look at this whole thing and what's going on, you know, from the very get-go, we're indoctrinated into just a blind obedience to the state, blind obedience to authority. Nobody would lie to us. And the funny thing is, too, I really believe that most of the people that are teaching this stuff are under the same delusion. I don't think that they're like most public school teachers, your college professors, even your pastors and all that. It's just like It's just like the... Uh, these secret societies like Freemasonry where they're on the top they know what's going on but everyone else doesn't and they use their minions to serve them um, they're blind and faithful minions and uh, we are all that (laughs) most of us are those people blindly perpetuating lie after lie after lie we obviously don't live in a world and, and where it's a man is or a woman is encouraged to actually ask the questions Unless you're going to start a social movement of some sort that the ruling elite can tap into control and use some way to manipulate you. And as we just looked here at Yahoo.com, who are those of the ruling elite? Well, apparently, at least in this country, it's turning out to be the Catholic hierarchy. I mean, I don't know what else. I mean, they dominate the, the headline news. I mean, once you erase the... Uh, the uh, the Jenners and the Kadarsians and the uh, whatever, whatever I can't even think of their name now, but it was, you know, the celebrities and the gossip and all the nonsense and stuff like that, or the pseudoscience um, that's, that's uh, in the headlines. Uh, you, you're left with the profound realization that there is no separation of church and state. <laughs> And that's what we're going to learn more about there. So 
We're going to learn about that, and then afterwards listen to Dave McGowan, hopefully. And those guys do a good, they ask some very uh, relevant, important questions of what's going on today in our society, uh, talking about the Boston bombing, the moon landing hoax, uh, numerous things. Um, um I think you shall find it very interesting. The weird thing in all this I'm discovering is all connected. The priest class and its many rules and then the money changers and uh, the the hierarchy, these uh, nobility, these families from Europe and and their blood, the European bloodlines. Yeah, they're all connected. And it's all about one thing, enslaving you. And how do they do it right now, today? Well, I guess we're the grand experiment, and it's all about enslaving your mind, you know? What goes on between your ears? And, uh, you know, if it fails, then you know what? They still got a big stick to beat you with. (laughs) So, anyways, my my apologies to anybody who feels that maybe I uh, laugh too much. Uh, my cynical laugh, but I don't know what else to do. And uh, it's probably not the most professional way of going about it, but once again, like I said, I'm not one of them. Just professionals. Okay, part five of Babylonian Woe, read by Gordon Poundstock. Ministry of Truth. I'm Gordon Comstock. It's time now for part five of The Babylonian Woe by David Assel. Blood, sorrow, and silver. The growth during the early years of the first millennium BC of the use of hardened iron tools in the mining industry and the development of a highly efficient system by the Phoenicians for smelting calamine and other silver-bearing ores, as shown by the almost complete absence of silver in the slags or scoria left by their mining operations at Lorion, released a heavy flow of silver onto the bullion markets of the Near East, with the consequence that silver further than being a standard for money accounting between merchants and also the temples, quote, in relation to staples, other metals, and customary services, unquote, became an actual means of payment and as currency of all levels of transaction. This practice, with all the possibilities inherent therein, towards the virtually unlimited private creation of money in opposition to that money which had been originated as entry in the temple ledger, spread westward with all its attendant evils during the first half of the first millennium BC, as already pointed out in respect to Greece. While certain temple organizations still survived, as previously mentioned and were strongly maintained, the instances quoted being those of the temples of Sippur and Uruk, the flood of privately issued and controlled money 
which in reality was this new silver in circulation, together with the pyramid of ledger credit page entry money raised thereon, had almost completely effaced even the memory of that law in relation to exchanges. That was the word and order of the god of the city himself, and that had been the issue of kings and priesthood of former times. These kings may have been aware that the source of all their powers was the power inherent in the creation and emission of the units of exchange, which was the power to discriminate, the power to reject or prefer from amongst their subjects. And of course, they may not have been so aware of the evidence revealing the steps by which this God power was undermined. The first and most important was the establishment of internal values in the exchanges within any state to the same standard as the value of silver in the international exchanges, which did not happen overnight, as it were, and may have slowly taken place over several thousand years. For at least 1,500 years before what was supposed to be the invention of coined money in Lydia, silver ingots already circulated in Babylonia bearing the stamp of the issuing and guaranteeing authority, whether temple, state, or merchant. Before this time, quote, silver was used in many instances as a standard of value, even though it was not actually employed in payments, unquote. It is not until the Assyrian, Neo-Babylonian, and Persian eras that clear evidence can be traced of the total degeneration of kingly power and of kings and so-called emperors as quite often being little more than gloriously be meddled front men for private money creative power striving to create worldwide hegemony. Well, this New World Order thing goes back a long way. They still continue to be needed principally as a point towards which the eyes of the people might be diverted in order that the people might not realize that all was not well in that direction towards which their loyalties naturally leaned, nor glimpse the destructive forces that were gnawing at the roots of the tree of life itself. Even as far back as 2500 BC, Sargon of Akkad proceeded into Anatolia to chastise the city of Gaines on account of the commercial community of Mesopotamia, probably to enforce payment of interest on loans or repayment of principal. One of the reasons of the success of Cyrus, though but a petty Persian prince, formerly to 550 BC, when he deposed his sovereign, Astyages the Mede, is clear from the circumstances of the victory over Cressus of Lydia in 546 BC. Cressus had offended international money powers, aha, uh -huh, by seizure of their treasury held by their agent, Sadiates, 
and by the total assumption of monetary issue by the state. Example had to be made of him to deter other princes from similar action. Wow. And the eager and ambitious Cyrus was obviously the one chosen for this purpose. According to the article on Babylonia in the Encyclopedia Britannica, 9th edition, by Professor Sace, Cressus had rashly joined battle with Cyrus without waiting for the arrival of his Babylonian allies under Nabu-Nahud, the father of Belshazzar of the Book of Daniel. It is more than likely, however, that a truer reading of these events would be that international money power, patron of the rise of Cyrus, both through organization of his supplies of mercenary soldiers and of the best weapons, had been the principal influence in these events, as in other enterprises of Cyrus, such as the Siege of Babylon 14 years later, thanks to its influence, while the progress of Nabu-Nehud towards junction with the forces of Cressus would have been sabotaged, Cressus himself would have been misinformed of the intentions and strength of both Cyrus and Nabu-Nahud. Cyrus won the day, and Cressus was totally humbled. Having thus proven his quote-unquote suitability and his readiness to promote the policies of his financial backers, the relatively easy conquest of Babylon was arranged for Cyrus some 14 years later. This is such a fascinatingly different interpretation of history. And I'm inclined to believe that this one is far more accurate than the ones you're going to read in mainstream ancient world history books. Cyrus, from then on, was designated, quote-unquote, the Great, and assumed the title of, quote-unquote, Great King of the vast Persian domains over which he now ruled. As the most valuable byproduct of their being and existence, kings and, quote-unquote, conquerors were also needed towards the maintenance of the steady inflow of slaves, sufficient to take care of the fearful death rate in the mines, and no doubt to permit of the opening of new mines due to the rapid expansion of the mining industry on account of the growth of the use of hardened iron tools and improved methods of exploration. This growth of bullion supplies, also meaning growth of the money economy, meant growth of industry. Such growth of industry meant further demand for labor, which labor then was principally slave, as money economy had not arrived at the totality of its modern development. Therefore, not only was an increasing and continuous flow of slaves needed for the mines, but also for the industry to which the products of the mines gave rise. This is starting to make sense to me why God in the Bible would not outlaw slavery as in bond servitude. Actually, he didn't even outlaw slavery when it comes to taking prisoners of war. However, 
what is outlawed is men stealing. And this is what the, the money powers were engaged in on the coasts of the Mediterranean at that time, but, and then later, a few, since many a millennia later, in the 1700s, 1600s, 1800s, on um, the coasts of Africa, involved in men stealing. So uh, the money powers are involved in the kind of slavery, men stealing slavery, that the Bible does outlaw specifically in the book of Joshua. There were two ways alone by which new supplies of precious metals became available to rejuvenate a monetary circulation, withering and even disappearing from wear and tear, exportation or hoarding, with the economic collapse that such condition could bring about. One was through mining using slave labor, as mining with free labor was rarely profitable, and the other was through sack and plunder. For the first method, quote-unquote, conquerors were needed, for free men did not willingly become mine slaves. For the second method, quote-unquote, conquerors were obviously needed again, for to cause a people to reveal and surrender their hidden hordes of precious metals would only be possible as a result of the nights of terror immediately following on the quote-unquote conquest and the abuse and rapine infected by a lust-crazed soldiery such as followed such conquerors and achieved such quote-unquote conquests. For instance, according to the book of the Iliad, book 9, Promise of the gold and bronze plunder of Troy was the principal lure used by Agamemnon, besides the return of Briseis, to bring Achilles back into the fight. For further instance, may be accepted the main information in respect to Shalmaneser the Assyrian and his campaigns in 858 B.C., leaving no doubt of the purposes of the hidden forces who guided him, and wherein lay their chief interest. The conquest of Damascus in 803 B.C. yielded 20 talents of gold and 2,300 talents of silver, not to speak of 300 talents copper and 5,000 talents of iron. The sack of Carchemish by Sargon, 717 B.C., yielded 11 talents of gold and 2,100 talents of silver. The following table reveals what was extracted from several lesser cities and their rulers. Cities, okay, lesser cities, and the gold and silver and the annual tribute. Okay, continuing on after this chart. Tyre, Sidon, and Jehu of Israel though clearly sitting on the fence, as it were, to secure the best advantage as might be offered out of these events, without openly committing themselves as ally of Assyria, hastened to pay tribute when after the battle near Wadi Zerzer in 842 B.C., in which Hazael, 
usurper king of Damascus was finally put to flight with the slaughter of some 6,000 Arameans, and likely the enslavement of many more. Shalmaneser, victorious but totally exhausted, came down to the coast, unable to continue with the investment of Damascus. It would be an interesting speculation as to what was really in the mind of Shalmaneser in turning towards the coast. What money power had armed Hazael to the point that he could be such a real threat to the Assyrian? Had Shalmaneser planned bloody revenge? Then realizing that in the destruction he planned, he might further destroy his own source of arms and those slave traders who organized the sale of his captives, had he hesitated, finally deciding to settle for tribute? The states of Arvad, Simira, and Ushana, in the fact that they paid no tribute to Nineveh, while being much closer than the Aramean states, revealed themselves as ally. The absence of any savage thrust by Assyria at that time against Israel or Tyre or Sidon in the first phase of Assyrian conquest would suggest such states, if not actually as ally, as harboring forces in one form or another, which would be controlled by agents of that highly secret international bullion-broking fraternity, which indubitably existed, and which was connected to the extensive organization of camp followers and slave traders that must have been yet another host behind the Assyrian host, and therefore profitably enemy of the Aramean. Money power, international in scope, being that it sought at this time to institute precious metals as the governing factor of exchanges over the rest of the known world, was deeply lodged in the heart of the Assyrian, a people to whom it had early imparted the secret Hittite skills and processes in ironworking, and who, in their homeland, had the necessary materials for such industry. Assyria, for the time, was their sword arm. Whether the Assyrians were aware of its significance or not, they must have been closely connected with that fraternity whose business was mining of the precious metals, trade in certain staple commodities and manufacturers, and slaves, and who must have conducted their operations in all the cities of Babylonia, Aram, whether enemy or not, and especially Phoenicia. Considering that Phoenician mining operations extended as far north as Britain, where was mined the tin so necessary in bronze manufacture, it may be assumed that Phoenicia, above all, dealt in Assyrian war captives. In places as distant as Cornwall, where they would have been in a relatively weak position so far from home, they would have relied on imported slaves rather than on local conquest. There is no missing the connection between the floods of slaves as released onto world markets by the Assyrian conquests 
and the rapid expansions of that which is now known as quote-unquote credit. The same silver and gold mining that was taking place all over the known world at that time. Of some interest is the story of the easing of the pressure on Damascus by the departure of Shalmaneser in 839 BC during the first phase of the Assyrian conquest to more pressing business in the north. Quote, Hazael, king of Damascus, was able to turn again to Israel. Unquote. Once Assyria, abandoning the Israelites, whose alliance they must have been accepting at that time, either to assure themselves of a source of supply of mercenary soldiers or of slave master camp followers, turned a deaf ear to the pleas of Jehu, the Israelite king, the Philistines, the Idumeans, the Amorites, and even their ancient ally, the Tyrians, viciously turned on them. Could it be to seize a share of the plunder gathered off the battlefields of Shalmaneser? All right, uh, we're going to take a break, a couple of minutes. See you on the other side. Okay, we're back. Time to finish up with the second part of uh, Part 5 of The Babylonian Woe by David Assel. The renewed stream of precious metal money that must have followed the sack of all those cities of Aram at this time, flowing through the coffers of the international money power located in the cities of Nineveh or Babylon or Ur, would have been accompanied by vast expansions of that which is now known as quote-unquote credit, the same being emitted in all the major cities of the Near East. Also, bills of exchange, letters of credit, but above all, the ubiquitous receipts for valuables reputedly on deposit for safe custody came into being, i.e. clay, quote, promises to pay, unquote, i.e. all forming expansion in one form or another of the working money supply. By manipulation of such abstract monetary units in relation to what might have been described as the visible symbols of the monetary unit, such as was gold or silver money, powerful business houses combining the operations of banker, goldsmith, silversmith, etc., with branches in all major cities, were certainly able to manipulate the destinies of so-called empires, just as they have done so in this day. That Babylon itself should have been able to rise again and lead a frightened world against Assyria to form the so-called Neo-Babylonian Empire is proof, however, that international money power at that time was not monopoly of the Hebrew, who now, whatever his origins, as ally of the Israelites who had come out of Egypt, appears clearly in history a distinct entity. Even if the part he plays as native of Palestine was relatively insignificant. 
It seems the fall of the Assyrian in finality in the defeat of Ashur-Ubalit by Nabal-Palasser in 605 B.C. was also the fall of the Hebrew. No sooner had Nabal-Palasser destroyed the last remnant of Assyrian military power than, at Carchemish, his son Nebuchadnezzar destroyed that of a resurgent Egypt under Pharaoh Necho recently victor over Josiah of Judah on that ominous place of battle, Megiddo, better known as Armageddon. See Second Chronicles 25, 20 through 27. And where 800 years previously, Tehutmes III had put the Confederate armies of Syria to flight. In this battle of Carchemish, in which Pharaoh Necho had suffered complete defeat, was destroyed the last protector of Israel. And as a consequence, in 586 BC, Israel itself was totally destroyed. Its leaders, overtaken by the same fate as its Aramean blood relatives, if not co-religionists, uh, were... Hmm, I wonder about that. Uh, that there. Were carried off to servitude at Babylon, where in the case of some, they were used to keep the wheels of industry and finance turning in that great city, while in the case of others, they seem to have been permitted settlement in the region of the river Kabar, a large irrigation canal near Babylon and where they were allowed to establish homes, to farm, and to maintain themselves as a racial and religious group, clearly living a national and exclusive life, as was shown by the very fact that an intensely nationalistic prophet, such as Ezekiel, could exist in the settlement at Kabar, preaching amongst his own people without restriction. During this time, the city was yet again sold to the new imperial power risen out of old Elam and the Persian highlands, and in 536 BC, the Persian forces under Cyrus the Great quietly entered the city by night march down the drying riverbed after they had completed diversion of the river. According to the book of Daniel, the proud Belshazzar, king in Babylon, was slain that night. It is interesting to note that shortly after the entry of the Persian forces into the city, the children of Israel were permitted to return to that which they considered their homeland, and every assistance was given them towards renewal of their national life and the rebuilding of their temple, which, of course, was its heart. In the very first year of his reign at Babylon, 536 BC, Cyrus issued a decree permitting the rebuilding of the temple at Jerusalem and the gold and silver vessels carried away by Nebuchadnezzar, supposed to be 5,400 in number, were returned to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah, who was leader of the migration. 
Although the proclamation of Cyrus had been addressed to all servants of God throughout the empire, the 42,000 or so who responded to the call and went with Sheshbazar were but a small part of the Hebrew population of the total dominions of Cyrus. The special concessions made by Cyrus to the Hebrew, almost on entry into the city of Babylon, would certainly suggest that he had received their substantial assistance, perhaps through financing towards the purchase of the finest military accoutrements, such as would only be obtainable through the good graces of the Babylonian commercial and banking houses, or through that information with which the Hebrew may have kept him constantly supplied, such as the state of military preparedness within the city, etc. It may reasonably be assumed that the Babylonian money power was completely international in outlook, whatever its outward profession, and totally unsympathetic towards the ancient faith of the ziggurat and the worship of Marduk, and towards the intended effects of the restoration of the ziggurat of Ur at that time by Nebuchadnezzar. If in earlier Assyrian times such money power certainly was not the Hebrews, though possibly linked thereto through members of the latter Israelitish confederacy, such as the Habiru, or even those who derived from the Hyksos, the fact of the existence of powerful Hebrew influence in international finance in Neo-Babylonian times seems a reasonable supposition. The Hebrew, being aggressive and intelligent, may have risen to a specially privileged position in the Babylonian money industry, if that is what it can be called, and may have come to learn at that time those secret practices of the money changer's craft, which he was certainly forbidden in his native land according to the laws of Moses. In Babylonia, the law number seven of Hammurabi has long since become a dead letter. That ungodly and cruel order of Ezra compelling the Israelites divorce their foreign wives after their return to what was considered their ancestral homeland might very well have been related to the needs of total religious, racial, and commercial security, as indeed might the ordinance existing today amongst English Quakers forbidding them to marry outside their own sect, whose leaders, any brief study will show, were deeply involved in the growth and control of modern banking, which had led, and still leads mankind, along a road that offers little peace or rest, and finally, exhaustion and calamity, a road of non-return. I didn't know that Quakers had leaders in banking. Wow. I have to look that one up. That's intriguing. One thing becomes clear out of this turmoil of rising and falling empires of the first millennium B.C., particularly that calamitous succession of Assyrian, Neo-Babylonian, and Persian empires from 933 to 605 B.C., 
625 to 538 B.C. and 538 to 332 B.C., respectively, and that is this. In a world where treasure had become totally equated in the people's minds with quote-unquote wealth, as expressing relatively large sums of the monetary unit, no sooner had one power gathered all such treasure in a given area into its storehouses and safe deposits, by conquest, plunder, and sack, then such treasure, temporarily creating boom, moved on again, as likely as not to form the base of those quote-unquote credits granted by international money power towards the purchase of arms and the best of mercenary soldiers by that next power destined to arise and be the new quote-unquote conqueror. Wow, that is profound. The bankers are always behind the scenes selling out whatever country they live in, whatever civilization, whatever world power they live in, the bankers live there, but they're international in scope, and they sell out their own country, basically, and they sell it to the next conqueror, and then they just hop, skip, and jump and go live in the next conqueror's homeland, I'm sure, and profit from it all the while. Oh my, this has gone on a long time. Dealing in money and bullion, which was the foundation of the money system, had become a highly specialized and closed trade, now able to operate quite apart from the temples, even if in many cases the temples still continued to permit themselves and that which they stood for to be used as front and so had offered sanctity to those most sinister and destructive operations of the money, bullion, and slave brokers. In themselves and their attitude towards mankind, the antithesis of God, the anti-God. The money masters had only one purpose besides maintenance of secrecy, which was growth of themselves, and those through whom they worked. Those through whom they worked were too often the criminal castes of the civilizations. Criminal because the nature of so much of their activities, such as fencing, counterfeiting of coinages, clipping and sweating of coins, was criminal, as it had to be. Towards this purpose, consciously or not, they sought the total destruction of that natural order of life, of God, king, priesthood, and temple, and the devoted, and its eradication from the book of life itself. For piety and love and man living with hope and will for the future, guided by his trained shepherds, all of this had to be substituted for an order of the exploitation of mankind. The rulers in such an order would be its previous rejects, its outcasts. Oh my. Oh my. So this is how you get a skull and boner as president. 
dropout, delinquent, secret society, Luciferian like Bush Jr. It's rejects, it's outcasts. And the philandering of Clinton in a decent society, a man who can't even control his own zipper would be a reject, an outcast. And this is why we get such people over us. Oh my. Because of the money kings, the bankers behind them, which have always been here, which have always been here since Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. This is profound. God, king, temple, and the devoted were to become a thing forgotten. Oh my. And man, into whom was to be injected raging animal passions, sounds like today, was to be left wandering without guide, sounds like America today, except such thrusting hither and thither by such as could only be called living sores of man-hatred. Oh, you mean like Louis Farrakhan? And uh, Alan Dershowitz? And which were embedded in mankind itself could be called guidance. The unfortunate masses of the ancient Orient who had so trusted their rulers had no idea or understanding of the new reality and that the ruler they saw, far from being the son of God on earth, was in reality a puppet. Sound familiar? Manipulated by that conspiratorial force. Sound familiar? Exerted by those controllers of precious metal bullion particularly. Ah, familiar again. That lurked in the Aramaic-speaking middle class mentioned by Professor Oppenheim. These powerful classes could have had no more than a secret contempt for the gods, kings, priesthood, and the peoples amongst whom they lived. Bush Jr. claiming to be a Christian when he's a Luciferian. <sighs> claiming that Islam and Christianity serve the same God and he can't quote from the Bible. Able as they were by this manipulation to bring about the decay or growth of power without reference to such quote-unquote state power structure, of those whose undoing or otherwise they planned. They themselves, through triumph of their system of private money issuance, had now in reality come to sit in the place of the gods. That sounds familiar. From this time on, it seems, there was not even that periodic interference of the king against the money lender. Sound familiar? All of these. This is all describing America today. Which gave the people respite from time to time, as in the old Babylonian period and the kingdom of Israel of record. Yeah, we're, we're there. We're beyond that. People have no more respite from the bankers in contemporary America. Cruel private monopolization of wealth and capital grew. That sounds familiar. That sounds exactly like America. Only in America could you have a 
a best-selling board game called what? Monopoly. With the lead piece, that little man character on the front cover of the box being J.P. Morgan in caricature. The master criminal himself. They themselves, through triumph of their system of private money issuance, had become come to the place of the gods. From this time on, it seems... Okay, I read that. Cruel privatization. Monopolization of wealth and capital grew, and where the people had been sheep in the flock, and the king their loving and devoted guide, now that kings concerned themselves with those false policies prepared for them in the interest of the private money creators, it's just like we got the all of our legislation now, or so much of it, like the uh, totalitarian takeover, <coughs> I mean the uh, Patriot Act, which was obviously written months, if not years prior to when it was uh, presented. It was prepared for them in the interest of the private money creators beforehand. The people became lost and disheartened, driven hither and thither, as they were by the crazed wolf masquerading in the place of the shepherd's diligent sheepdog. Wow. In this time, as today, the people were almost entirely at the mercy of the private persons controlling their money, who then controlled the inflow of precious metals, silver and gold, the foundation of the people's money. The policies of these controllers, from their standpoint as internationalists, were necessarily directed towards the stimulation of war against the well-being of mankind. Frequently, wars were, above all, the prime essential. Firstly, towards the destruction of the natural system of rule, previously defined, which had been the protection of the people. Secondly, towards the reinjection into the system of hoarded coin and bullion, and consequent reinflation of the money supply. Thirdly, but not the least important, the gathering of a new crop of slaves to replace those stocks of silver and gold so necessary to the foundation of their money power and the maintenance of their international hegemony in consequence. You've been listening to part five of The Babylonian Woe by David Assel from 1975. You'll never find this one in your library, certainly not in audio. I am Gordon Comstock. This has been the Ministry of Truth. You're welcome. You're welcome for my presentation to you of this book. visualized roads such as these in his science fiction fantasy, and today they're a reality. You're listening to the afternoon commute with John Adams and Chris Kendall. This is the afternoon commute with your host, Chris Kendall, and I am John Adams, 
And we have a special guest with us today, um, somebody who I came ran, ran across this information maybe about 10 or 11 years ago. I was just looking for some information on the McMartin preschool case uh, on the Internet, and I ran across an article called The Pedophocracy, and I believe a lot of that information later got turned into uh, one of his great books, which I recommend on my reading list, uh, which is at hoaxbusterscall.com, uh, attached to our phone calls that Chris and I do. And the book is called Program to Kill, along with uh, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. It's recommended on the reading list as well. We have Dave McGowan. Dave, how are you doing today? Not too bad. How are you? I'm doing very well. Um, I just recently heard an interview with you on the Opperman Report. Uh huh. And, and you went over a lot of information about uh, the NASA hoax uh, with the moon hoax. And um, and I, I'm, I'm going to recommend that interview to people because you did a really good job of covering like a lot of bases around uh, the moon hoax. And so we were going to talk about the moon hoax today, but honestly, I was just going to say uh, everybody needs to just go listen to Dave on that Opperman report because it's really good and it's like two hours long, I think. And, um, but I'll start off with this question for you. After reading Program to Kill, you know, a couple of years ago, I would say that a good way to sum it up is the basic conception that people have of serial killers is completely wrong and that the idea of a serial killer in itself is a complete and total hoax. What do you, what do you think of that? I would tend to agree. Um, yeah, one of, one, of the, one, of the, one of the fascinating things that has developed in regards to serial killers in the, um, gosh, I don't know, it's been at least a decade, I think, since that book was published. I'm not sure. I think it was published in uh, 2002, I want to say. Not 100% sure about that. So it's been out there for a while. <laughs> and... Um, one of the things that, that amazes me is how much uh, serial killers have really um, sort of faded away. Um, they're very popular on TV nowadays, you know, as anti-heroes. You know, we get these these characters like Dexter and and uh, and uh, the guy in the Following and all, all these other shows. And uh, it, it's interesting is that uh, serial killers seem to be seem to be more more plentiful on the TV screen than they are in real life these days, you know. And until recently, that was just kind of a an observation that I had made myself without really, you know, having empirical support behind it. But I just recently was uh, emailed, fairly recently, a study that was done, um, some college, which uh, fully confirmed that and that, that the, uh, the number of uh, reported serial killers and the number of reported serial killer victims have dropped just dramatically in recent years. And, um, you know, the days when we had these these uh, name-brand serial killers, you know, that, that, that attain, like, uh, you know, near-celebrity status, you know, people like Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy and Hillside Stranglers and the Night Stalker, you know, all these people with the 
with the nicknames and the, and the, the you know very high name recognition and uh, whatnot, we don't see too many of those anymore. And um, you know, it's no longer really a part of a, our daily existence, and, and that's all been um, sort of now. And now we have uh, you know these spree killers slash domestic terrorists uh, taking center stage. And our new reality now is that, uh, you know, these, these school shootings and workplace shootings and whatnot have now become our daily reality. And um, just as when serial killers, you know, made their sudden uh, appearance on the scene, you know, basically in the late 60s and early 70s, and and suddenly we had... Uh, you know these these, uh, these very high profile serial killers stalking the the country, and um, and that is all really kind of faded away now. And and um, you know, like I say, it, it's been largely replaced by by these spree killers and and whatnot. <clears throat> you know, whether it's the Boston bombing or Virginia Tech or Littleton or you know whatever it is, uh, that seems to be the new normal now. And um, you know, and that's. To me, my interpretation of that is that uh, serial killers aren't really necessary now because we have new boogeymen to fill that role, you know, and um, and yet no one questions that, you know, no one questions why all of a sudden serial killers became a daily part of our national fabric, you know, for a few decades, and they don't question now why it, why they have faded away and just as they don't question why now we are expected to accept the spree killers and, and you know, quote-unquote domestic terrorists as, as, the new, uh, as the new reality. And, you know, it's just very strange to me that that can happen and no one questions it. You know, why, why, do, we, why, why, do, why do these things happen? Why do we accept them as a part of our, of our new reality, and and then uh, and then they fade away when another boogeyman comes along to replace them. And so, you know, that to me is one of the key indications that there's something very wrong here. You know, that these people uh, seem to pop up and and do what they need to do to you know change the national conversation and, and steer the agenda. And then they fade away and are replaced by a new boogeyman who serves the same purpose, you know. So, uh, to me, that's yeah, your article. I was going to say your article on the Boston. I was going to say your articles on the Boston bombing that uh, that you got posted up at your website. Uh, those are really great. Um, as you, uh, for anybody who hasn't seen those, uh, Dave goes through the the photographic evidence of the Boston bombing and points out how it's completely fabricated. There wasn't nobody, I mean, I don't know Dave's total opinion on this, but I'll, I'll just ask him. But from what I can see of going through your, your the photographs and, you know, going through other people's evidence and things that Chris has uh, hit me through here, you know, I don't think anybody died that day. And I don't think that a bomb even went off. It looked like, like you pointed out, that there's like a smoke machine and people are like putting on props, basically. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty astounding, really. I mean, the, the fact that there's so much photographic evidence that directly contradicts the official story, and yet nobody 
in the mainstream media will talk about it. Nobody involved in the ongoing mockery of a trial in Boston will talk about it. And yet uh, they're right out there for the whole world to see, you know. I mean, anybody that's got an Internet connection and knows how to use Google can can pull up, you know, just scores and scores of images that directly contradict the entire official story. And you can see with your own eyes these people walking around the scene um, without a mark on them, you know, not a drop of blood on them, no, not a mark on them, no visible injuries. They're not getting any appearance of being injured. They're walking around, milling about the scene. And then, like, a couple of minutes later, here they are being wheeled off in a wheelchair covered with blood, you know? And, I mean, it's just absolutely extraordinary how blatantly obvious it is to anyone yeah. that takes the time to study these images. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just absolutely extraordinary that something like that could be pulled off in front of the entire world. And... Uh, and here's all this evidence just just floating around out and stuff. There's anyone who to take the time to look at it, but uh, most people don't. You know, um, either out of just out of arrogance because they feel that they already know what happened, or out of fear because in the back of their minds they know that the story doesn't add up, but they don't want to have to deal with that on a psychological level, you know, it's just too hard to process the notion that the government could pull off such a massive hoax like that and uh, with such serious repercussions for not just the alleged victims and perpetrators, but for all of us, you know, I mean, it has serious, serious consequences for all of us. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's extraordinary, you know, and I had serious doubts at first when I first dove into it, and uh, my initial thought was that <laughs> it was for the most part real, but there were definitely some uh, some people, in, in, you know, so some of it was staged. You know, the Jeff Bowman thing, I just found just, um, very hard to, uh, to believe right from the beginning. And um, so the initial focus of the article was on him as sort of the, the main indicator that there was something wrong, but the more I studied it and the more I looked at these images and, and followed the, uh, you know, followed, you know, you can go through these images in sequence and, and pick out specific characters and follow them, you know, follow their, exactly what they did, and the more I looked at it and the more I studied it, the more I realized that, that uh, the whole thing appears to have been just a massive hoax, and, um, yeah, I mean, there's no indication whatsoever that these are actual shrapnel-laden bombs, you know? It's just, I mean, there's so much evidence that directly contradicts that notion. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is just, just absolutely reeks. And <clears throat> now, added on top of that, we have this, this entire mockery of a trial going on where the defense is doing absolutely nothing to counter what is blatantly perjured testimony being delivered by the prosecution witnesses, and yet the defense has repeatedly declined to challenge any of them. <clears throat> you know, they started off the proceedings by walking in and declaring the client guilty. You know what I mean? That was the first words out of their mouth is he did it. 
in, in uh, Judy Clark's opening statement. And, uh, you know, when your own defense attorney starts off the proceedings by, by declaring you guilty, um, you've got a little bit of a problem, you know. And then, when, and then when she sits back on her hands and refuses to question or cross-examine a whole parade of, uh, of prosecution witnesses, Whose testimony could be very easily impeached. You know, these people are are telling tales that are simply unsupported by the photographic evidence. And all they would have to do is introduce some of those photos, and these these witnesses could be completely destroyed. You know, I mean, they could just be left hanging out to dry. You know, I mean, all you got to do is is display these pictures and they show me. Could you show me exactly where you were in the scene when you were doing what you just said you were doing? You know, and and obviously they couldn't do that, <clears throat> which tells me that everyone in that courtroom knows that this is that this is a joke, you know, that this is just complete nonsense. Because there's, there's no way that these people would take the stand to tell these stories, and there's no way the prosecutors would call them to the stand to tell these stories if they thought there was any chance that the defense was going to uh, challenge and discredit these witnesses. I'll just so throw one out. What's that? I was going to throw one uh, specific example out there of um, uh, Chris Christara Brassard. I have this in front of me, and she was she supposedly her legs were full of shrapnel, and she has and she's uh, got a dislocated ankle. But there's this there's all this footage of her like running around like a world champion sprinter. I mean, she's just running all over the place, and it's just absurd. And then, and then it shows her later on in a wheelchair with her leg in this uh, stint and a big cast and a big foot on the end, you know, like the it, – it's just absolutely ridiculous. It, it's just astounding, you know. And, uh, I mean, like on Thursday, they had this medical examiner named Jennifer Hammers uh, called this stand, and she testified explicitly – that uh, based on her forensic examination of the alleged body of Crystal Campbell, that uh, her injuries were so severe that she would have bled out in less than a minute. So Mm -hmm. she probably died within seconds, and at most she could have survived for one minute. Now, I have pictures posted on my website of this girl with her eyes open with an oxygen mask on and very, I mean, very clearly alive, several minutes after this medical examiner is claiming she was already dead. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, all the defense would have had to do was display these photos that they could you please explain to the jury how this, you know, how it's possible that you're claiming that this girl bled out in under a minute and yet there are photos in existence floating on the Internet in which she was very clearly very much alive long after you said that she should be dead. And yet they don't do that. They don't challenge it, you know. Um, they could have also challenged it on, you know, they could have also brought up the point, well, how is it possible that Crystal Campbell, with both legs still intact, as you can see in the pictures that they are, how is it possible that she bled out in less than a minute while Jeff Bowman... <laughs> who supposedly got both legs blown completely off, laid there unattended on the ground for like 10 freaking minutes, 
Yeah. With nobody even attempting to provide any aid or comfort to the guy, and yet he not only didn't bleed out, he didn't even lose consciousness. And yet this girl who had two intact legs supposedly bled out in under a minute. You know, so I mean, there's there's numerous numerous angles that they could have approached, you know, used to completely blow this woman's testimony out of the water. And yet they gave her a free pass and didn't uh, challenge her at all. So it's, I mean, it's it's amazing to me, you know, that a first-year law student could go in there and get this kid off, you know? Oh, yeah. it's just, I mean, <laughs> you know, if, if they claim right off the bat, well, you know, they conceded defeat from the beginning. You know, basically the defense team said, well, you know, we're, we're going to concede defeat on the uh, – on the, the guilt phase, and you know, our efforts going to be directed solely at the uh, the penalty phase and uh, trying to save the kids' lives, <clears throat> but making no effort to try to actually clear him of the charges. And you know, the reality is that kids got one of the best defenses you could ever possibly have, which is I couldn't possibly have committed these crimes because they never actually happened. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And yet they won't do that. It's just, it's, I mean, the whole thing is just so patently fraudulent, and uh, it just drives me crazy looking at the, watching this uh, trial unfold and seeing this go down. And you know, I mean, it's really terrifying to think that that's how far we have evolved as a society. That uh, you know, the government could pull something like this off, not only hopes the event, but hopes the entire trial as well. Yeah, and it's, it's like the mass, the mass media and the social media stuff doesn't even help. I mean, they had they had the uh, Twitter alerts going out saying, "Oh, we're about to set off a bomb." Yeah, don't worry, it's a, it's a drill. And then they set off the bomb, and they do the thing, and it's right there, and people screen captured it, and there's all this other stuff. And then there's like the fundraising sites that come out, like, uh, well, I know on Sandy Hook they come out like the day before, but it doesn't matter because. People ignore all that stuff, you know, but it's there it is right out there in the open. Chris, you should tell tell Dave about um about the Chris Kyle thing with the bomb. Yeah, Chris Kyle um has this organization called the Craft, which is just coincidentally enough like what the Masons call their deal and what actors call their deal, the craft. And the, they specialize in, you know, simulated warfare complete with um, pyrotechnics and all that stuff that simulate what it looks exactly like was the bomb. Yeah, like a yeah. and they were all over, yeah. they were photographed all over the scene there. And, um, and then his whole connection with, um, what's the actor's name, John? Uh, 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 Cooper? Um, Bradley Cooper. Yeah, Bradley yeah. Cooper. And then he goes on to do a movie about Chris Kyle, and then the whole Chris Kyle thing is um, obviously some kind of scripted narrative uh, to to make him sort of like this sort of poster boy for gun control and how they kind of tie that in. And now that's like they've um, neatly fit this all like gun control and the bombing and all that stuff into one neat package. And uh, I just wanted to say, too, you were talking about serial killers, Dave, and how, you know, that that has sort of faded out. And now this uh, mass, the, the, the whole narrative of the mass shooter, the spree shooter, 
and how that like if we if we step back and think about this how this serves the system it's like this idea that there's these crazy nuts out there and they're sort of unbounded by any you know state boundaries or anything like that so they go on these spree killings and they can um you know appear anywhere at any time and um you know it, it you know, in the case with the spree shooters, it justifies the armored police and the armored tanks and all that stuff. So it's like, oh, we need this stuff because of the spree shooters. And then with the serial killers, it's like they, you know, and, and of course, it's all this is incorporated with your uh, TV dramas and all that stuff that feed into this narrative of this need well, for the state power. Cannibal Lecter came out at the right time. Yeah, St- Cannibal Lecter and the whole uh, the whole FBI investigator that brings them down and all that. Yeah, so it's like this need for the FBI, this need for this overarching, uh, you know, national state power that has, uh, you know, authority to go over state lines and everything. So it's it kind of it kind of props all of that up. That's what I see. Yeah, the. the uh... Yeah, the speaker was much more uh, effective at advancing the agenda, I would think. Uh, you know, I mean, the serial killers were great for instilling fear in people. And, uh, you know, the more you scare people, the more they're going to run to Uncle Sam for protection, the more they're going to willingly sacrifice their rights and, and uh, you know, uh, go along with uh, increased police powers and whatnot. But that that has been just drastically escalated since uh since the dawn of the of the spree chillers and you know now we now we see them using it to justify uh you know the imposing what can only be described as martial law you know um in boston you know with the shelter in place orders and just rolling in all of his military hardware and personnel and and um to cheers supposedly from the people Yay, the police are coming to save us, you know. (laughs) And uh, it's a much more effective vehicle for uh, advancing the police state and, and to you know, uh, getting people used to the idea of uh, just very heavily militarized, uh, you know, domestic military, basically, is what what they are very quickly becoming. And, um, And people are willing to accept that. If they think that it's going to keep their kids safe in school or keep them safe when they go to the mall or, you know, whatever it is. So, um, which is why they've, uh, you know, why serial killers have kind of morphed into, into the, uh, you know, the spree killers because it seems to be a more effective vehicle for advancing the agenda. The, the serial killers did a good job, you know, while they were around, but now we've become more advanced and uh, so they've been replaced with the, uh, the street killers, you know, I mean, from my perspective, anyway. And, you know, um, you... <laughs> oh, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, the Craft International thing, that was a really weird one, man. I mean, because, uh, you know, you had these you had these people who clearly were in uh, Craft International uh, garb, you know, their, their clothing and insignias and whatnot, you know, pulling up in these black SUVs and, rolling out onto the scene for unknown purposes or, you know, their presence there has never even been officially acknowledged, but they were in fact there. And uh, Bradley Cooper also made an appearance there at Jeff Bowman's bedside, you know, right. posing for photo ops. There, there he was. And you had a doctor, <laughs> supposedly, a guy who claimed he was a doctor, 
who bore just an unbelievably uncanny resemblance to Steven Spielberg. I'm sure you've seen him in the pictures wandering around. You know, people originally going, what the hell is Spielberg doing there? So you had all three of these, uh, <laughs> you know, you had Crafty International, you had this, this Spielberg lookalike, and you had the real Bradley Cooper, all three on the scene in, in very prominent ways. And then literally like a week later, they're announcing that uh, the Chris Kyle story is going to be made into a movie directed by Spielberg and starring Bradley Cooper. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. whoa, <laughs> that's just a little too weird, you know. Of course, it ended up you passed it off to uh, whoever, uh, Eastwood, Eastwood, I guess, was yeah. the ultimate director. But when it was originally announced, it was going to be a Spielberg project with Cooper and, and Kyle and... I'm like, what are the odds that, you know, these yeah. same three people who seem to be so prominently featured in the Boston story are now a week later, uh, you know, setting up to make this film. It was just bizarre. Yeah, it's interesting how... I don't know if they do that. I don't know if they do that just to screw with us, you know, just to kind of, like, know. rub it in, the, in our faces or, you know, I, I, I don't know. But I think it's this. I think I think it is, you know, these things need, like the Boston bombing and the whole thing, need, they need script writers. You know, it's a scripted event. And, um, you know, you could you could go back and, you know, you, you talk about the moon hoax and all that and uh, Kubrick. He comes out with a movie, like, right before the you know, the whole Apollo missions and all that. And, um, and then there's all this, you know, uh, sort of circumstantial evidence that points out that probably like the, the front screen projection technology and all that stuff was what was used to, you know, to fake the moon. But it's, you, you could go is like any of these types of events, like nine 11 or something like that. And you see like a, a movie tie in or a pre a predictive programming type of, um, situation where, you know, the stuff in the fiction closely parallels with the stuff that's supposedly real life. And I think what, yeah. what goes on there is like some court, there's, there's definitely a, a coordination. There's numerous examples of this, you know, out there from, uh, yeah, there is. Yeah. Yeah, it happens you, you way know. too often to be just by chance, you know, I mean, like with nine one one, you have the, uh, the Lone Gunman episode, which was a very brief spinoff from the X-Files. I think it lasted like one season, but, uh, you know, one of the episodes was, was specifically referenced, uh, you know, a 911, uh, you know, definitely uh, foreshadowed the uh, the 911 attacks, you know. And then, uh, like on Boston, you had, uh, what was it, Family Guy or something with... Uh, you know, Peter Peter Griffin running uh running people, you know, mowing leading all these bodies strewn along the finish line of the Boston Marathon when you when you while you hear uh remote control bombs, you know, going off. Yeah. It's just too close for comfort and it happens too often to be purely coincidental. So it definitely does seem like predictive programming. Um yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, there, there are numerous other cases. It's just, uh, yeah, when these high-profile events come up, you know, people uh, start scurrying around and, and, you know, remembering this stuff, and next thing you know, you know, they're, you know, dredging up, hey, they just talked about this on such and such a show. So, yeah, I mean, there's a very, 
a very close, incestuous relationship between Hollywood and the intelligence community, and I think there always has been. Yeah, you know, you know what else too? Um, uh, going back to serial killers, we we tend to have nonlinear conversations on here, so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, bouncing back, yeah, back to the serial killers, um, what, what I was saying about people's conception of how a serial killer is, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but if you actually uh, read uh, Dave's book, Program to Kill, or or if you just go and look into anyone, I mean, there's been numerous you know documentaries and movies made about all these serial killers glorifying them, mm-hmm. and... Um, and if you go look at the actual, like, like things that happened to these particular guys, the, the, the projection that these people are methodical and that they only go for a specific type of person, um, they're very obsessive-compulsive about the people that they kill, mm-hmm. is actually not true <laughs> that they kill. Yeah. Like, like, can, can you talk about that, Dave? Yeah, I mean, kind of the time, you know, that's one of the main points that I hammer away at at the book is that the, the uh, you know, typical serial killer profile that we've all been taught all of our lives just doesn't really add up, you know. Uh, these people are supposed to be loners, but, uh, and frequently there are indications that they are not, in fact, working alone, you know. I mean, sometimes it's acknowledged you know, that they weren't working along like the Hillside Stranglers or the Ripper Crew or, uh, uh, you know, the Sunset Strip Killers or <laughs> various <laughs> others, uh, you know, Matthew and Henry Lucas, you know. It's, uh, yeah, Henry Lucas and, and Otis Tool, you know. There, there, are, there are numerous cases where where you can find where, where, you know, where it's acknowledged that there was more than one perpetrator, but... Uh, even on the ones that, were, that are supposed to be lone nut serial killers, if you really look into the details of the cases, it becomes pretty obvious that, uh, that far more often than not, there are very, very strong indications that these people are not working alone. And, you know, another thing that we're supposed to believe is that, <laughs> that they're basically committing the same crime over and over again in a ritualized manner, that the, the victims are all very similar in terms of age, gender, appearance, and, and whatnot, and that they're, they're killed in, in the same way following the same kind of ritualized uh, procedures. And, you know, and that, again, it does not add up. If you really look at these cases, uh, the victims are all over the place frequently, all different ages, different genders, different nationalities different everything, you know, there's not a common denominator in most of these cases tying all the victims together, nor is there a common denominator as far as the, the method of death and, you know, whether they were raped beforehand, whether they were tortured beforehand, whether they were dismembered, whether they were left posed, and, you know, all of these other factors. Uh, if you really look at these cases, it's very, very rare that you will find someone who actually fits what we are told is the standard serial killer profile. So the more you look at them, yeah, the more it just does not add up, you know? I mean, there are cases like, well, this guy up in, like, the San Francisco area, I think it was Ed Ed Mullins or something. can't remember exactly his name, but I believe it was. It was 
this whole string of just, just wildly different uh, killings, you know. One was a homeless guy that was, like, beaten to death with a baseball bat. Another one was, like, a priest who was shot to death inside his confessional. And then a couple other ones were women who were, you know, kind of the more standard type uh, serial killer type victims. And But it was just a whole mix of different people from different walks of life, all killed in different ways. And yet the whole batch of them were, were written off as the work of this one serial killer, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I found that time after time after time and going through these stories that, uh, you know, what we are led to believe does not, does not correlate with the reality of, of uh, how most of these cases actually play out. Yeah, maybe it's the, uh, you know, they could, didn't Henry Lee Lucas, he confessed to every murder from, you know, your neighborhood janitor guy, you know, it, it, you know, everybody like, oh, yeah, I, oh, yeah, I killed it. Yeah, I did that, too, and I did that, too. So they close all these open, you know, unsolved murder cases all across the country and say, oh, yeah, Lucas did it, Lucas did it, you know. So maybe yeah, when he, they're uh, doing yeah, he performed an invaluable function for law enforcement. I mean, they basically took him on tour across the country, and uh, he took credit for, like, every unsolved uh, unsolved homicide on the books and all over the country, you know, yeah. and uh, which is a great benefit, you know, for the various police departments because they get these troublesome cases off the books and don't have to actually investigate uh, what really did happen, you know. So... Um, yeah, you know, and he's not the only one that, that they've done that for. Yeah, at one point they were claiming that he was responsible for like 600 or more murders, uh, you know, single-handedly, which is just absurd, but that's what they claim. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they, uh, yeah, they, they, he provided a very valuable function to, uh, to law enforcement in allowing them to sweep a lot of troublesome cases under the rug. Yeah, and that's speaking that of, oh, go ahead, John. I was, I was going to say, speaking of troublesome cases, and once again, bouncing all over the map, uh, Dave, you wrote a great article on the North Hollywood shootout, right? Remember that article? Yeah. Yeah, and, I do. Yeah, and so um, another movie tie-in to this whole thing, which, which uh, you did a great job in that article, and everybody who's listening needs to go read that article about how, like, that was all fleshed out in the fictional account that was put on TV. But not only that, that movie, or that, that whole thing was fleshed out in the movie Heat, starring Robert De Niro and Val Kilmer. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Like, like, the same exact scenario happens in that movie Heat. And what was funny was, is I know, I know people really did get shot in that, in that shooting just because, uh, my boss at work, his cousin was a North Hollywood police officer who actually did get shot, and mm-hmm. still to this day sustains a leg leg injury from that shot. So, or from that shooting, could you uh, talk about that a little bit, Dave? You know, I really wish I had been more politically aware when that first happened. I don't remember what year it was, but uh, I was still fairly naive at that time. I mean, I, I was skeptical. I, you know, I, I was searching out news from alternative sources, but uh, was not nearly as political savvy as, as I like to think that I am now. 
Uh, but even then, it, it just it seemed very strange to me. The whole case didn't add up, and um, and I knew they were lying about at least parts of it because, uh, for one thing, they claimed that the one guy had committed suicide. Uh, what was his name? Uh, Larry Phillips, I think. Is one I can't. Yeah, and uh, the other guy was uh, Mattis Moreno or something like that, but. Um, the one guy, you know, that they, they claimed on the news that he had uh, killed himself, that he had uh, turned his gun on himself and shot himself. And I was watching the coverage live, and you could see the guy gunned down. <laughs> he was walking down the street, waving his gun, and then, boom, a sniper just took him out with a headshot, and he just crumpled to the ground. And yet the next day they were reporting that he had committed suicide. And I'm like, um, excuse me, <laughs> I was watching the live coverage and that guy did not commit suicide by any stretch of the imagination. And, and, uh, and they lied about the other guy's death too, who they, who they allowed to literally just let the dude bleed out on the street, refused, uh, paramedics and ambulances access to him and whatnot. And deliberately left him laying there to bleed out. You know, and then there were there were indications in some of the early reports that there were more than two shooters involved, <clears throat> far more than two shooters involved. And, you know, that was really my first experience with that kind of a case where, you know, people, uh, you know, other people were saying, wait a minute, uh, you know, this, this doesn't quite add up. And, you know, there were people saying there were other shooters and. And, uh, you know, the, the media is obviously lying about what became of the two shooters that are acknowledged. And, and um, so, but, you know, like I say, I wasn't all that savvy back then. And I lived, I was living at the time in uh, North Hollywood, actually, like two miles from uh, B of A, where it happened. And um, <laughs> it wasn't until many, many years later that I decided to try to dig into it a little bit and see if I could find out what really happened and um i wish like i say i wish i had been more aware at the time because uh i would have gone over there and interviewed some of the employees at the bank and found out you know <laughs> what what exactly did you people see and how did it differ from the way it was reported you know in the media and um sure could, could, could have gotten some very interesting stories i'm sure but uh unfortunately you know, it was, uh, it happened a little before I was, uh, you know, aware enough to really, uh, process this, this kind of stuff and, and realize what was actually going on. But, uh, yeah, that was a fairly early example of a, uh, at least partially staged and scripted event that was ridiculously misrepresented, uh, to, you know, to the American people. And, um, I mean, these guys were firing live rounds, man. <laughs> Whole automatic. They were just spraying bullets everywhere. It was just extraordinary. And yet nobody got killed other than the two shooters, which was pretty amazing. You know, some people got injured, but uh, no bystanders and no cops got killed, which, which just amazed me, considering just the, the barrage of bullets that these people were firing. And, um, you, know, you know what? Um, on that note, Dave, we talk about Chris and I talk about this a lot because we we both shoot guns, and um, uh -huh. and in fact, I just got off work at a bullet factory right now. So, uh, <laughs> but um, but we talk about this with, with all these alleged uh, mass shooters, and 
I mean, I don't know if you've ever fired a gun before, but try hitting a moving target just uh, without any experience. It's it's very hard to hit a moving target. It's very hard to hit a a, a, a stable target. You know, when, when they say you can't hit the broadside of a barn door, more, most people who shoot a gun for the first time really can't hit the broadside of a barn door standing right in front of it. So it's, it's funny. It's funny how all of these uh, alleged mass shootings, these guys have incredible kill rates, and it's just on a whim. I just decided to pick up an AR-15 and go down there and shoot everybody, and I killed everybody. <laughs> yeah, I know. The kill ratio is just extraordinary. I mean, just the, yeah, the number of uh, the number of rounds that connect, you know, uh, and the number of, of rounds that are fatal, the, the percentage is just so absurdly high. It's like these people are just uh, like born to do what they do. You know, it's uh, normal people don't have those kinds of uh, abilities, and not just. Not just the, the act of shooting, but the, the whole tactical, you know, uh, all, all, everything that goes into it, you know, I and mean, the way that they're able to move through these crowds and uh, just take out so many people without anyone being able to stop them. And then this amazingly accurate firing rate that they have, it's just, it's extraordinary. It really is. And... Um, you know, returning to the uh, North Hollywood thing, I, I don't know that people are fully aware of that, but that was uh, that was one of the very early stages of, of militarizing our police forces. And, you know, the fallout from that, it, all we heard was that how badly our police were outgunned. You know, they're out there with their service revolvers and their shotguns facing these guys with automatic weapons. And that's what first got the public on board with accepting the LAPD to be issued uh, assault rifles, semi-automatic weapons. And from L.A., it quickly spread across the country. And now, you know, we have SWAT teams and, and uh, you know, militarily equipped cops all over the country. Well, they had and SWAT a lot team, of that man. began with North Hollywood. Yeah, they had SWAT, they had, they had SWAT team then. But, um, like, according to this, um, looking at the Wikipedia entry on this North Hollywood shooting, it says that SWAT team didn't show up on the scene until, like, 20 minutes later. It's like, yeah, so that was obviously a set-up deal, no doubt about it. And they said, too, that, like, yeah, they never sent they had, helicopters they, had help, they had helicopters in the sky. They had a whole mobile command center set up and everything else, but yet they couldn't get a SWAT team there, you know. And, yeah, so... So that then it became, well, it's not, you know, we need to equip our just rank-and-file officers with more firepower because we cannot have them out on the street being outgunned by the criminals. And uh, and that was really the beginnings of, uh, of the wholesale militarization of our police forces. A lot of it dates back to, uh, to North Hollywood. So another thing I was I just thought of this while you were talking about, uh, you know, your experience with this shooting and, not being able to hit the broadside of a barn and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> what did you make of the uh, story out of Ferguson a couple of weeks ago that these two cops were supposedly uh, picked off in a line by uh, initially an unknown shooter, and uh, they claim that this guy was, uh, according to witnesses, uh, the shots came from like 150 yards out, and the guy was firing supposedly a forty caliber handgun 
and he gets one cop in the face, and the cop's standing next to him in the shoulder. I mean, this guy, and they claim that there were only like three to four shots fired, and he scored one headshot and one near headshot from 150 yards out with a handgun. I mean, do you think yeah. that's even remotely possible to do? Actually, yeah. actually, it is, actually, it is possible because I think the guy was was actually Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, yeah. okay. a clown. <laughs> so yeah, I mean so, that one. Uh, and then of course they never released the names of the officers or any pictures or anything to uh, document that these guys had actually been shot. And uh, I don't, I don't even, I don't even think, I don't even think Michael Brown got shot. So I definitely don't think cops got shot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and amazingly enough. Amazingly enough, they, the cops did not return fire. You know, they oh, initially yeah. claimed that the they initially claimed that the shooter was embedded, quote unquote, with the protesters. Was among the protesters that opened fire on the cops, and yet the cops showed an amazing amount of restraint, apparently, by not uh, returning fire. You know, and I mean, what a lot. You know, we see videos every day popping up on YouTube of the police shooting people for. No reason whatsoever, apparently, and yet we're supposed to believe that some guy just opened fire on the cops and dropped two of them, and there were like forty other cops in the scene, and not one of them returned fire. You know, I mean, how does that make any sense whatsoever? You know, you can shoot a homeless guy laying on the ground after he's already been beaten and tased, and there's, you know, posing no threat to anyone. They'll shoot him. But they won't return fire to guys who who is blatantly picking off cops, you know? I mean I, I don't know how people can even read this stuff and not and, and accept it as, as the, you know, anything approaching the truth. Yeah, that that uh that remember that guy Kelly that guy Kelly Thomas got beat up in Fullerton? Yeah, and Fullerton, yeah, the homeless guy, whose own father was a former cop, a former right. LA sheriff, I believe it was. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I work, yeah. I, literally, I literally worked like a stone's throw away from where that happened, and uh, there were people protesting, you know, like every day I'd drive to work, there'd be people standing out there with signs and whatnot, and, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's just, it's like you said, like, like cops will kill you, okay? They will kill you if you look at them wrong, but but they're not going to return fire for killing another police officer. Give me a break. Yeah, I, I mean, that's just, how does that make any sense to anyone whatsoever? That, that You know, I mean, it's just, the whole thing just reeked of a staged event, you know? It's just... Uh, yeah, I, I, it's extraordinary to me, and I just, I just, I read the paper every day, and I just shake my head. You know, it's like, how are people, how are people buying this? You know, and more and more, it just seems like, like they're becoming bolder and bolder. You know, about the deception, and uh, you know, the more they, the more they get away with it, the more it seems to empower them to go yet further. You know, with the. Uh, with the deception and uh, yeah, I mean, I just I wonder, you know, where, where do where do we reach a breaking point? When do when do we reach a point where people, you know, pick up the paper and say that can't possibly be true? You know? Yeah, there's definitely uh, 
a lot of work and effort being put into um, creating this uh, divide between po- police and and the average person out there. And uh, yeah, I think that uh, well that the they had the shooting, you know, alleged shooting in New York, which that was really fishy. And then they had drills going on at the same time. So that was probably a, a, a fake stage deal where the guy supposedly comes up to a squad car and executes two cops sitting inside. Um, and, yeah, that was kind of reek too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then, yeah, and, the one in, and there's been a couple of them in LA where they claim that, uh, cops would come under fire, uh, which, which, uh, were very, very questionable, uh, stories to say the least. And, you know, all, all of this, all of this started coming, coming forward, you know, in, uh, in the aftermath of, of uh, Trayvon Martin and, and the guy in Ferguson and, you know, there are these various, uh, you know, handful of very, very high-profile cases that have, that have hit the news. And, and uh, you know, almost immediately the media was trying to change the narrative from, you know, oh, my God, the cops are out of control to, oh, my God, the cops are under attack, you know. And it just seems such a blatant ploy to try to steer people in the opposite, you know, in the other direction and be, you know, supporting the, the police no matter how how uh, far out of control they seem to get because, you know, they have this uh, horribly dangerous job and they're putting their lives on the line every day and, you know, we see examples of it, you know. So it, it just all seems way too convenient and the stories just never quite add up. And, um, yeah, I mean, the whole thing just, just reeks, really. <laughs> Chris, Chris uh, uh, tell tell Dave about tell Dave about the movie premieres, uh, the, the George Zimmerman verdict, and the and the uh, <laughs> uh, the Ferguson verdict. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, you read my mind, man, because I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, the uh, okay, so yeah, during the so-called uh, Rodney King riots. Um, the uh, that was that that happened to coincide with the season finale of the Cosby Show, and uh, then there's the um, uh, you know Charles Manson coming out in the news at the same time that the Ferguson riots are going on. So like Charles Manson is kind of you know his whole thing was about trying to start a race war, and then all of a sudden he pops back up in the news as getting married or something. Yeah, I know. Mean, uh, yeah. absurd, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then all these. Yeah. And then there's these other. Uh, this movie, Selma, which is about MLK supposedly getting assassinated and all that, and then it's released like within days of uh, which one? The uh, Michael Brown verdict. Um, then that movie comes out within days. The movie premiere of the Michael Brown verdict about MLK. And then there's this, uh, movie called, um, uh, what is it? Fruit, Fruit Vale Station. Uh, it says it was a drama written and directed by Ryan Coogler. It's his first feature length film based on events of, uh, the death of Oscar Grant, a young man that was killed at the BART officer, uh, killed by a BART officer. Um, you know, the one where he was supposedly had his hands handcuffed behind his back and then he was shot by a cop. Um, that, yeah, I that, that yeah. one. 
So that that premiered like within days of the George Zimmerman verdict. So they have like all this coordination of these events. And then, oh, another thing I, it's uh, thrown in there is like uh, they had a they had a, a premiere of a movie about Nelson Mandela's life, and this is all going on around the same general time frame. And then um, at this movie premiere, oh, they announced that oh yeah, N- Nelson Mandela just died. You know, so like, how is this even possible? How is that even remotely possible? Yeah, I mean, it just really hints at just. Um what a massive amount of planning really goes into this, you know, because uh, movies don't just, you know, come out overnight, you know. Right. I mean, it takes a couple of years from concept to getting it to the screen, you know, writing the screenplay and shooting the film and all the post-production work and distribution and, you know, yada, yada, yada. You know, I mean, we still have movies coming out now, uh, you know, featuring uh, people that have been dead for a year or more, you know, like uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman or uh, the guy in the, the, the car, Paul Walker. Yeah, I mean, we still have movies coming out, you know, featuring them, uh, you know, a year or two after they're, they're gone. So, you know, there's a very long... A very long uh, time lag there between concept and, and actually released film. So for these films to be so coincidentally released, there has to be an incredible amount of planning that goes into these events. You know, I mean, these things are on the drawing board for a very long time, and they're very carefully scripted over a you know long period of time because there's no other way to really explain that, is there? I mean, to me, there's not. You know. And then you take it as far as Rodney King, by the way, if that were to happen today, they would have pulled their guns out and mowed him down in a, <laughs> in a hot second, man. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. that dude would have been that dude would have been laying on the ground dead. Because uh, yeah, they they don't they don't have to show any kind. Of, I mean, they know that they can get away with it. You know, I mean, you know, every time one of these incidents happens. It's you know I almost feel like they want us to see these these YouTube videos now that that seem to proliferate so oh, yeah. much uh, around these shootings because it it makes people feel disempowered you know I mean yeah. you watch these people being blatantly murdered by the police not only in front of witnesses but on videotape aired for the entire world to see. And yet still nothing happens, you know. Not only are no charges filed, the guys don't even lose their jobs, you know. They're still on the job doing their thing. And, you know, that makes people feel very disempowered. You know, you watch this over and over, and at some point you just say, well, what what can we really do? I mean, do, do we have any power to stop this at all? You know, and by the same token, the police all across the country are watching this and learning I can get away with this too, you know, if they can get away with it, then I can get, you know, so it, it's, uh, you know, I, I, in large part, I, I don't know that the government really wants to suppress those videos. I think they want us to be scared of the police and they want the police to know that they are empowered to serve as judge, jury and executioner, you know, and that's a very scary world to live in where the police are, seem to have blanket power to serve as judge, jury, and executioner, and it doesn't matter how blatant it is, it doesn't matter how many videotapes surface or how many witnesses contradict the official story, they seem to get away with it, you know? 
And now we're seeing in the Boston trial that even if you aren't, you know, even if the cops don't serve as judge, jury, and executioner, and you manage to get yourself a trial, there's still no guarantee that you're not going to be completely railroaded, you know? So, I mean, who do you turn to in this world today? If you can't trust the police and you can't trust the court, who do you turn to in time of need, you know? I don't think it's anything new, though, myself. And then, you know, I, I think people got to keep in mind, too, that the police and, it, you know, if you wanted to add it up, everybody that, you know, identifies themselves as government and, and put them all together, they're, they're a very, very small percentage of the overall population. So it's like that's why this stuff is needed. That's, you know, people are controlled to the tube. You know the the tube and the mass media. That's that's what controls people. And then you know, well, now we got the internet and all the stuff that's on the internet. But I mean, you know, I I can make uh, several trips to the store and, make, and not even see a cop. And then you see a, usually see a cop, and he's just kind of probably on his way to you know get a donut or whatever. But um, but you know, still I get a little bit nervous. You know, just seeing a cop because you know the stuff I'm watching on YouTube and all that. But I got to keep in mind too that there's not that many cops out there. There's not that many bureaucrats out there. There's not that many judges out there. I mean, they can only yeah. pick off people one by one uh, at ran at random, you know. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, I do believe the attitude is there that they have this yeah, uh, immunity. And by the same token, you know, uh, they want us to believe that every move we make is being watched, you know, whereas logistically that's not actually yeah. possible, you know. Ridiculous. They would have to have as many watchers as they have. You know, I mean, there are people, I, you know, I've talked to people that are convinced that every email they sent is being read, every phone call they make is being overheard, every conversation they have is being monitored. And, I mean, that's just not logistically possible, you know. You would have to have at least as many watchers as you have to watch, you know. And if they're working eight-hour shifts, you'd have to have three watchers for every person being watched, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but they want, which is why I don't believe personally that people like Edward Snowden and uh, Julie, whatever, Fonz or whatever, I, I have a hard time accepting that they're legitimate, you know. I, I think mean, they want uh, that information out there. I think, you know, it doesn't do any good <laughs> yeah, to build a, a surveillance state if everybody doesn't know that it exists. You know, they yeah. want us to think that every, you know, because it has a, a chilling effect. You know, if people are afraid to speak their mind, on their phones or by email or text message or internet posts or whatever it is, you know, I mean, that has a massive chilling effect if people think that everything that they are doing is being monitored. The, the, stu the stuff that Edward Snowden came out with, I knew about over 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah me too. I mean, Chris, Chris probably knew about it 20 years ago. <laughs> huh. yeah, um, I've heard stuff that yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. So, so the, um, he didn't come out with anything new, and then just think about how, what the probability. What do, what do you think the probability of the media actually paying attention to a guy like that under any other circumstances, unless he's controlled opposition? 
I know, yeah. I mean, yeah, the fact that he's gotten so much media coverage and, you know, the government acts like their hands are tied to uh, apprehend or stop him, um, you know, just uh, doesn't really wash too well, you know. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very suspicious of, uh, of who these people actually are. Uh, I don't. I don't think real whistleblowers tend to get that kind of media attention, or uh, you know, that kind of backing from from various uh, you know people. Um, yeah, I, I I have a hard time believing that that happens. I think real whistleblowers usually end up dead before they even get their mouth open. So um, yeah, so I'm I'm very skeptical of uh, the so-called uh, you know, and I know that the Snowden movie just. Uh, just hit HBO or something a lot of Citizen Four and is getting all kinds of uh, buzz, you know, about this, this. I haven't seen it myself, so I don't know what's actually covered in it. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that the movie could even get made and distributed and and get so much media attention uh, really kind of uh, yeah, it really kind of indicates to me that these guys are not what they pretend to be. Yeah, they definitely want this stuff out there. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. For the chilling, yeah, the chilling effect, and it's all about uh, perception management. Just like with the serial killers, just like with the spree shooters and all this stuff, it's it's to create this, you know, this this model of the world it, to people to latch onto, and it's, it has this common thread in it. It, it all justifies the, the the power of the state, you know. It, all of the whole narrative is like, oh well, you know. There was some good stuff in that movie, that movie about um, uh, what was it called with the guy in the mask and all that. You guys know what I'm talking about the 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 the, cart, the cartoon guy came up oh, with it more. Uh, Alan Moore, V V for Vendetta or something v like that. Vendetta, yeah. And but there's the one scene in there that uh, where the one politician is ranting and raving, and he's like, you you know, we need to communicate to people how badly they need us, you know, and how they need to be protected from all this bad stuff out there, you know, to paraphrase that. But um, I think that was the one, one good thing in that movie and how, you know, it, it the, the perception has to be created out there that um, all this, all this, you know, police power and all this status power and stuff. And then, you know, I, I think people acquiesce to it more now since 9-11 and stuff and then the Boston bombing and all this stuff because they they see whatever they whatever the action they take against somebody or they, if they, you know, are violating their privacy or want to search their vehicle or whatever they want to do, they say, well, you know, they're just doing what they have to do to keep everybody safe. And that, and that is like how – that is what propels all this stuff forward. But, the, you know, the real actual danger, I believe, is the, the whole status religious belief itself. And that and that's that's what is is kind of inverted about all this stuff. But yeah, I, I, I believe that this this propaganda is put out there and it works and it and it and it and it's solely put out there to serve the system and it and it does have an effect. Yeah, it does. I mean, you can see it. Uh, you can see it if you go to any of these YouTube videos and and scroll through the comments section. And I mean, I don't know if it's like government trolls putting all these comments up or actual people, but uh, invariably, when one of these uh, when one of these clips goes up, you just get a whole slew of comments from people just uh, 
you know, basically just, just, just uh, praising the police and, and thanking them for, you know, serving their community and and uh, just, just absolutely just attacking anyone who's anti-police and, and uh, you know, demonizing the, the victims of police violence. And it's, it's extraordinary, really. I mean, it just turns my stomach to, to read and just barely veiled racist uh, Sentiments just sprinkled everywhere, and you know it's just—it's. I, I just turned my stomach to read. You know, I look at this video and say, "Geez, I mean, this is this is just a blatant example of police criminality." Mm-hmm. And then you go through the comments and see all of these people defending them. You know, and yeah. it's just. Uh, and yeah, okay. trolls. I think a lot of it's trolls, but then I think a lot of it too is is just pe- r- how people think. You know, they're like they're putting comments like, "Yeah, if you just do everything the cop tells you, then there won't be any trouble." You know, you just yeah, need to do people everything. say that all the time. It's like, when are people going to learn to just follow police commands, and this kind of stuff wouldn't happen? You know, and I'm just like, really? <laughs> That's what you came away from this video with? You know, it's. Uh, it's mind-boggling to me, and I, yeah, I wonder if these are real people that really think like that, or if a lot of them are trolls trying to shape public opinion. I don't know which yeah. it is, but whichever it is, it's disturbing, to say the least. But uh, yeah, the co- I, I think like we we don't have a lot of time to get into a uh, Laurel Canyon today. Maybe we could do another call like in the future on Laurel Canyon if you're. Able yeah. to do it. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I mean, there's so much going on in the world nowadays, you know. It's, it's uh, yeah, you know, I mean, there's so many different directions you can go. It's, uh, there's no shortage of uh, topics mm-hmm. to discuss these days. So, yeah, yeah so, uh, whatever, whatever you guys want to do, I'd be more than happy to, to come back on if you'd like. Sure. Cool. Yeah, yeah the um, one thing I wanted to say that I actually – I actually started coming to right, right when you started writing those Laurel Canyon articles in 2008. Um, I was I, I heard I heard uh, a, a, a radio guy I think Alan Watt, and Alan Watt actually read one of your articles on his radio program. That's how I kind of got a re-hit to you again. And um, oh, I, I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't. Think, I don't know that I'm even aware of who. I, the name rings a bell, but I don't know that I know specifically who he is. Yeah, it, not to be confused with Alan Watts. <laughs> yeah. But um. But anyway, yeah. uh, I, I heard I heard him read one of your articles on air, and around that time period, I was really coming to the conclusion with a lot of things, and and the Laurel Canyon article really cemented it, but but also you know, the program to kill stuff as well, is that our culture is shaped and manipulated. And and whereas we think like like that we have our own ideas about how, you know, like the fads and the trends and the clothes we wear and the music that we listen to and all of our hairstyles, we really don't even notice that all of that stuff is given to us by a fad machine, by a culture industry. And and so it's interesting if you look at a lot of this stuff because the basic medium that it's all coming through is the television and the media. Um, yeah. It, 
if, if you look if you look at that as, as being the like one of the sole drivers pretty much uh, of of where we go as a culture and where you know where people like what people think about what people are scared of what people what what their pleasures are it really it, it, it has a homogenizing effect you're able to scare people uh, with the same stuff all at the same time because you have a mass media which at one time didn't even exist you didn't even have a mass media at one time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, it's it, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I mean, it it, it, it allows us uh, to just be bombarded with uh, with and, and you know the appearance. You know, the most people is that we have the greatest uh, free press in the world, and that we're very special, and that we get our news unfiltered from all of these different sources. And there's you know. There's a, a slice of news for for anyone, regardless of your political persuasion. And, uh, you know, we have all these competing and, uh, news services with different ideologies and, and different slants on things. But the reality is that they all use the same talking points and that, you know, wherever you go, you're just bombarded with these same, these same news, these same talking points and, you know, and, and it's very effective because, you know, people tend to believe, well, if, if everybody across the ideological spectrum sees it the same way, then it must be true, you know. Um, but it's not. <laughs> and the whole thing is really just a, a giant, a very elaborate charade. It's a very well-constructed charade, but it's a charade nonetheless. <clears throat> yeah, it's, yeah, designed to, uh, well, I mean, I've, I've I look at things this way. I mean, we, I think we, civilization, um, and you look up the definition of, of civilization, and uh, even the Wikipedia entry, it tells you that um, one of the characteristics of civilization is uh, the domestication of animals and human beings. Um, we're, we're mainly domesticated human beings that live within a type of uh, a farming system or a ranching system where our, our energies are sucked off of. Yeah, I, I, I believe that's what, what the true nature of civilization is about. It's about uh, extracting our labor, extracting our uh, energies, and, and, and using them to, um, among other things, to, to uh, um, train us and to keep us in a certain frame of mind and um and the you know the media is is such an important part of all that like you know whether or not like you could point to any particular event like a boston bombing or saying hey, well like did people actually die or not well you know all that's needed is the perception of this you know uh this, this mass murder stuff but if you um look over another area like statistically let's say um in the instance of the police you know and like you always hear that oh their jobs are so dangerous and you know that sort of is sort of put out there as sort of a um explanation why they act the way they do but in reality if you i mean if you want to go by uh Bureau of Labor Statistics or something like that. You know, the police, the police, their job as far as being hazardous doesn't even rank in the top ten. They don't even rank above trash collectors, which is crazy. Yeah, I, 
Yeah, I I posted that because I posted some of the studies and stuff on my uh, on my Wilson's Facebook page. Uh, yeah, that uh, I work in construction, which is actually a much uh, higher risk profession than uh, policemen. You know, as firemen, craft fishermen, um, labor, all kinds, all kinds of uh, jobs that that are uh, far more dangerous than police, and yet. Uh, and yet we don't we don't get huge elaborate overblown funerals every time a, uh, a carpenter falls off a roof and dies or something you know. Did you uh, ever have to You know they, they they make such a huge deal out of it. every time a cop dies you know there's like a hundred thousand cops come in from all over the country to uh, you know pay their tribute to this fallen officer and uh, you know why why is that why. Why don't we? Why don't we have elaborate funerals for crab fishermen or for right. contractors or for carpet? You know, it's it's not it's not by any stretch of the imagination the most dangerous job out there, and it's actually become much safer. You know, I, I've uh, posted a, a link on there to the study that broke it down year by year, and there were more cops killed in the line of duty like back in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in whole numbers than there are now. And there were way, way fewer cops on the streets in the 1920s than there are now. So percentage-wise, it was vastly higher uh, in the 1920s than it is now. It's actually become, over the last 20 years, a much, much safer job than it was previously. I mean, there, there are years from, like, the 1800s where there were more law enforcement officers killed in the line of duty than in the last, like, five or ten years. Um, so this notion that, you know, they have the most dangerous job and it's becoming increasingly dangerous in the modern world just does not add up. If you look at the actual statistics, it's not even close. But people believe it. You know, whether it's true or not, people believe it. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. what can you do, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, put out the, I try to put out the real information, but whether people want to read it and believe it or not is another question entirely. But, you know, it can be shown empirically that the police police is not, by any stretch of the imagination, the most dangerous profession. And rather than getting more dangerous, it's getting more safer and safer year by year. So, um, you know, this whole notion that we need to support the cops because they're doing this terribly dangerous job to keep the rest of us safe, it just does not add up on a statistical basis whatsoever. Gentlemen, I have to uh, go. So you could continue talking if you like. uh... Okay, want to go on for a few more minutes, Dave? Yeah, I can go over a few. i got to go pretty soon because i got a uh, vet appointment for my pooch here coming up, but I can hang for a few. Okay. Dave, it was nice, it was nice talking to you and nice, nice finally uh, meeting you. And um, and uh, like I said, I I, prom- I uh, recommend your books on our um, on our when we do, Chris and I do our talk. So, well, I thank you very much for that. You know, I mean, I, I am completely reliant on uh, on guerrilla marketing, so to speak, because uh, mainstream media will not even acknowledge that I even exist. Wouldn't even consider reviewing. Give me a bad review on my books, you know. They just don't want. To, they don't want to draw any attention to them at all, you know. Which uh, and it's been very, 
it's been very gratifying to see how well the newest book is done. And, uh, you know, just, just through guerrilla marketing tactics, really, with, with no no mainstream backing whatsoever. I mean, not, not a mention on mainstream TV or newspapers or radio or anything. Um, and yet the book has found an audience uh, regardless and has been but very, very well cool. received on Amazon. You know, last That's time really I checked, cool. I think I had like a... I have like 133 reviews on it. I have more reviews from rank and file readers than any of the mainstream books written about uh, Law Canning, which were national bestsellers, you know, with with major mainstream support. And yet, I have more positive reviews on Amazon than any of them, you know. So, which which is which is very gratifying, but at the same time, also frustrating because I'm thinking. Geez, if my book can do that well just through, you know, what limited marketing opportunities I have, how you know, how many readers could this thing be reaching if the mainstream would actually pay any attention to it, you know? So, um, but yeah, it's been uh, it's been very gratifying to see that uh, there's there's a real hunger out there for real information, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's been uh, it's been an interesting experience. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll get I'll get in touch with you uh, maybe like in a month or two, and we can talk about Laura Cannon. So, all right, guys, I'll talk to you yeah, later. Definitely. Hey, take care. All right, bye. bye. Sounds good. Bye. Are we still on? Uh huh. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, you were talking about your dog. It was like, and so another thing too, you hear you hear and see all this stuff about the police shooting dogs. This is just. Ridiculous! Oh, those just those just sicken me. I can't. I can't. Honestly, I can't even watch those. I, I watched yeah. one of this guy in like South Central. He's a Rottweiler jumped out of the car to come to his owner's aid, and the cops are just, just gunning down right down the street, and uh, just just sicken me to see that. And, uh, and I'm a huge dog lover. <laughs> And I guess I've become jaded and, you know, uh, to where, you know, the people getting shot doesn't bother me as much as seeing a, a defensive dog being gunned down. And, uh, yeah. yeah, that's becoming more and more common, too. And, uh, yeah, just absolutely sickening me. I mean, my dog is a member of the family. And my, you know, I mean, you shoot me with my dog in front of me, you might as well gun down one of my kids in front of me because you're going to get about the same reaction, you know. So those are very, very hard for me to watch. Really hard. I don't know, like. I guess it's whatever you know, like uh, like anything that's a perceived threat. Like just gun it down. You know, like a a, a person, a child with a toy gun, or there's all these examples out there, and it's like. It, it seems too like you know the the thing with the dog shootings and the and all that. It seems like that's like crafted to push people's buttons, you know, like to make people really angry at the police and fearful and angry and afraid. And it, it just seems yeah. like, yeah, it's just this prodding, like poking people in the eye with a stick, you know? Yeah. I mean, when they, when this one happened, uh, this real high profile one here in LA, I mean, people were calling in death threats to the police department. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, you just you know that guy better watch his step because uh, <laughs> and yeah, I mean just uh, yeah, people were emboldened to call in death threats to the police station, you know, mm-hmm. over a dog. 
So, yeah, I mean, it has a, it's a very visceral reaction that people have. It's a very emotional reaction. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite possible, probable that they are uh, playing on that. And they know that that has a very profound effect on people. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, all I have to do is say I felt threatened, you know. Yeah. I felt threatened. And then everything goes, you know. He's going for a gun, or the dog was charging me, or I thought he looked like he was reaching for a gun, or, you know, whatever it is. And, uh, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's just extraordinary. I, I watched a video the other day where these cops went up and knocked on this, this gal's front door who had called them because her mentally disabled son was, uh, I don't know, doing something. And she called the police for assistance. She answered the door. She steps out. The kids, you know, her son standing behind her holding this little tiny screwdriver. And the cops immediately start yelling at him to drop it. And before the guy even has a chance to react, to respond, they both pull out their guns and just gun him down right in the doorway in front of his mom. Mm-hmm. You know, because he's yeah, holding a tiny screwdriver. And you're like, come on, dude. You guys yeah. got guns. You got mace. You got... Taser, you got pepper spray, you got body armor, and you're you need to shoot this guy because he's and he's not even holding it in a threatening manner. You know, he's holding yeah. it down at his side like he just finished working on a project or something. I don't know. And they yeah. just gun the dude down. Just, like a little folding, yeah, like one of those little multi tools with the little uh, screwdriver and stuff in there. And it looked like he had the uh, Phillips screwdriver out. It's like, man, you ain't gonna do no damage with that. It's like. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's just incredible. And then some people come back and say, well, yeah, none of that is real. That's all state stuff. And it's like, well, if you take into account, too, that for years and years with a war on drugs, I mean, the cops will go and, you know, SWAT team raid a house with, with children present or stuff like that, or, or not even that, just the fact that they, they, they take people to jail on a regular basis for marijuana. I mean, and, and lock separate them from their families and lock them up in jail. And like, no, I don't think anybody in their right mind can deny that's going on, but, um, yeah, too big yeah a lot of people, a lot of people think these shootings are being staged. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have become so jaded that anything that hits the news now is, uh, people's first assumption is that it's staged and that there's no real victims out there. And yeah, um, yeah. you know, that it's all just, it's all just being choreographed and, uh, which, you know, some of them may be, but, you know, I mean, the, the, the message that sends to people to some extent is, oh, don't worry about it. Nobody really got hurt. You know, it wasn't, it, none of it's real. It's all fake anyway, you know. And, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I buy into that. I I, no, I think I the cops really are out there <laughs> getting people down, you know. Um, so, yeah, and, and dogs, you know. So, yeah, so it's a scary world. It really is, you know. I mean. I, I I would be very very reluctant to call the police these days for virtually anything, you know. And I'm a I'm a white suburban kid, you know. If I was if I was black, I don't know that I would ever call the police for any reason. Why should they come out and shoot you as they are to resolve whatever problem you're calling about? You know, we've seen it over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, I've had I've had my own personal run-ins with uh, police and. Uh... And, you know, I just not too long ago, I was uh, involved in a single car accident and I was uh, um, I was giving them a little bit of static because I wanted to get my stuff off the ground. I had a brand new sleeping bag that was blowing away 
in the wind and I, I was like, well, you know, I cut my trucks all wrecked and I rolled it. It ran off the road and uh, fell asleep at the wheel and ran off the road. And then, you know, it's like, there's my truck it's destroyed and my, my, my shit's all out on the ground. And then there's my brand new sleeping bag blowing away. And I'm, I'm like, uh, and so the cops are there and they show up on the scene, you know, after the ambulance shows up and, um, and I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to tell them, I said, yeah, I'm just going to go and out here into the field here and grab my sleeping bag, you know, and, 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 um, they were like, no, you're going to answer our questions now. You know, so they have all these questions. So I guess they assume you're drunk or high. You know, they go off that assumption. And I was act, I was kind of out of it. I was like, um, you know, I'd just been in a wreck, and I was like, you know, I, it, it shakes you up, you know, especially when you're rolling and tumbling and all that crazy stuff. But, uh, yeah, they took me straight to jail. And this was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was driving through. I was going to um, – uh, I was going to go, I was going to go maybe to California and see relatives and stuff out there, but I, I, I ended up not doing that obviously. But, um, yeah, they take me straight to jail. I didn't get to get checked out by paramedics. I nothing like that. They just t- throw me in the back of the squad car and, uh, yeah, just no regard for whether I was okay. Maybe I was in shock or nothing like that. So, yeah. I, yeah. That's I mean, another, that's another that's another thing in these shooting videos that you see time and time again. After they after they gun these people down, they just leave them laying there to bleed out. They don't they don't they make no effort to check on the you know they don't call in an ambulance. They don't call in any kind of medical support. They don't try to you know uh, assess the, the uh, situation themselves. They just they just gun them down and then just leave them there bleeding out. You know it's just. Uh, it's extraordinary. It's just, it's just absolutely amazing how callous these these, uh, these cops have become. And you really got to wonder what kind of training they're going through these days. You know, I mean, how do they create? How do they create these people that are okay? Not only are the shooters are okay with it, but I mean, you'll see scenes where there's like, you know, ten or twelve cops on the scene, and not one of them will ever speak out against. You know, none of them will cross that uh, blue line to. Uh, to speak out against what you know what happened, they all seem to be perfectly okay with it. And they well, have I heard the it. department and the police chiefs and everyone will rally around them for support. And um, you know the whole department just—I mean—you gotta wonder what kind of training are these people going through that they're okay with not only gunning down people themselves but watching their colleagues gun down people for for no apparent reason and be perfectly okay with it, you know. This this guy was talking about this on uh, Mark. You ever heard of Mark Stevens? He he, he goes into um, like law and how to fight in court and stuff like that. Um, he had a guy on there, and they were talking about um, uh, that that very thing. And he brought up a really interesting point. He was he was talking about how like people in in natural systems like will you know form themselves into tribal groups. And then once it reached a critical number, and he threw out a number, a figure like about 140, 150 people, somewhere roughly around there, says like um, you have the the sort of natural tribal order falls within those numbers. And then anything that is beyond that, like, you know, you have anybody coming in from the outside, they're seen as outsiders. So there's a sort of mentality to see, okay, these are the others, these are the outsiders. 
And then, and that's why you have like your police departments and your other like bureaucracies sort of as these tight knit groups. And they see themselves as, you know, cause they go through their training and they go through their conditioning and they go through all this stuff that, and it's like a, you know, with the, with the police, it's like a fraternity where they um, are sort of a de facto tribe and they see other, they see the, you know, civilians or others as not even being, you know, totally human. They don't even, they treat you like a number. They treat you like uh, an outsider. And they said, that's, that's the social dynamics that are at work there. It's like the, they, you know, you know, even in bureaucracies or whatever, like the people who work in government, they, they see themselves as a a separate uh, sort of tribe and they see everyone else as sort of an outsider or uh, intruder and they act accordingly. Yeah, I I would tend to agree. Yeah, I mean, uh, cops for for the most part part tend to be a very uh, close social group, you know, and uh, they socialize primarily or exclusively with other cops, you know, in their social circles, and they tend, you know, they move to these, uh, like, white flight areas, as they're called, Mm-hmm. Um, here in, in LA, it's like uh, Stevenson Ranch and um, like Simi Valley, where if you move out there, like half of your neighbors are LAPD. Yeah. You know? So they, they they live with, they work with, and they socialize almost exclusively with other cops, and they, it definitely promotes a sort of groupthink mentality of us versus them. You know. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely encouraged. You know, it's it's something that uh, it, it's just part of being a cop. You know that that fraternity and um, and all. And then plus, you know, too the the Freemasons. You know, a lot of the the higher order ones are also in the Freemasonry and all that. And uh, yeah. I actually witnessed the. Uh, I was in. I I, I went. In, they had this open lodge in El Paso. And I went inside and just checking out. They had like a lobby, everything that was open to the public. And so I went in there and I sat down. I was looking at all their weird books and their weird stuff on the wall and all that. And a, a, a policeman in uniform came in and started doing, I guess, the entered apprentice oath or something like that, right there at the end of the counter. And uh, and they were giving him the oath, and he was in full uniform and everything. It was it was pretty bizarre. But uh, yeah, there's that aspect of it too. So kind of another layer. Yeah, and, and they, they are very well compensated these days, too. You know, there was an article in the LA Times the other day about uh, the LAPD and this proposed raise that's on the table for the uh, LAPD. And, you know, anytime there's a local election, uh, all of the candidates, uh, you know, are, are piling on top of each other, promising more money for the police, you know. Oh, I'm going to hire an additional 100 extra. Well, I'm going to hire 200 additional elections, you know. Like, well, where's the guys that want to, uh, you know, rein in the police instead of giving them more weapons and more manpower and more power and more authority, you know. And um, it just, yeah, so, uh, so they're talking about this pay raise, and, and they said that, uh that the, the starting pay for an LAPD officer is relatively low, but uh, that they can advance very quickly and, uh, you know, through overtime and, and uh, tenure and all that, they can, they can very quickly make, you know, much more money. And that the, the average salary 
for an LAPD officer, something like $97,000 a year, and that it's not unusual with overtime and perks and whatnot to make up to like $140,000 a year for a cop, you know? I mean, this is somebody with no college education. You know, our teachers, who are, should be one of our most valuable resources and that have to spend years in college earning degrees and teaching certificates, they don't get paid shit, yeah. you know? And get no respect at all, but... The police are very well compensated these days, and, you know, there's a reason for that. They want them to feel like they are part of the 1% rather than, rather than part of the 99%, you know? They want them to feel like they are, you know, <clears throat> you know that they belong, uh, you know, to this different social class, so to speak. So, um, you know, it's, it's essentially it's a very, very uh, lucrative job for someone that has only a high school education to get a job where within a few years you can be making $140,000, you know, and, uh, and treated as a hero. And, and, uh, it, it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very, very appealing uh, position, you know, to say the least. And, and, uh, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, our, our priorities are, are, are wildly screwed up. You know? Yeah. So, you know, you got these, you got these guys making $100,000 plus a year in a job that's becoming increasingly safer year by year, and yet they're paid more and more and given more and more power. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's... yeah, I think they're the real criminal class. I really do. I think they're the real – they represent the true uh, disruption to society, and they are the real, you know, organized true gang. And, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. So anyway, I got to, uh, I got to get my dog out here and pull out pretty soon, but, uh, it's been really good talking to you guys. And, uh, I would, I would totally be, uh, open to, uh, coming back on whenever you guys, uh, you know, have another, uh, opening we need to fill. So, yeah, it sounds good, man. Uh, uh, so where is your what is your site and how do you like like get a hold of your books and stuff like that? Uh, my site is the Center for an Informed America. Uh, you can Google that. The actual URL people always forget. It's www.davesweb.cnchost.com. Uh, it's just kind of a mouthful, so it's generally easier to just either Google my name, Dave McGowan, or David McGowan, or the Center for an Informed America, and you should be able to find it. And I do have a page there where I'm selling uh, signed copies of my most recent book. Uh, probably won't be for too much longer because it's been out for almost a year now and uh, sales have slowed down. But I do still have uh, some copies in stock if, uh, if anybody's looking to get a signed copy. And uh, I also have a Facebook page set up, which uh, if you're on Facebook, just type in Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon and you should be able to find it. And... Uh, that's where I have posted, like, all the images uh, that accompany the original articles, plus a lot of additional images, because uh, there aren't pictures in the book. The publisher decided it would, uh, it would raise the printing cost too much to be able to offer it for a fair price. So, uh, unfortunately, the photos didn't make it in. So, <laughs> for anyone who, who wants the, uh, the visuals to go along with the story, you can find them on my Facebook page, along with uh, various updates of information that's uh, come available since the book was published and, and information on 
on uh, you know other topics that I've researched, and I uh, I generally put links up to any interviews I do and uh, notices if I'm going to have any public appearances coming up and whatnot. So um, those are the two places to check up on me, either on my my actual website or on my uh, my group Facebook page. Yeah, you got a really good writing style too. I like the way you write. I mean, you're really really good at at uh, a lot, putting stuff out a there. A lot of people. A lot of people say that, which is very flattering because I have no actual formal training, which which seems to benefit me because people say that they don't have a a very conversational style, and it's just like uh, just kind of sitting around after dinner listening to uh, you know a friend uh, tell stories and, and whatnot. And uh, yeah, I've been told that my style is very engaging and and uh, you know it doesn't necessarily follow uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, journalistic uh, expectations, but uh, it seems to work for me and, and it seems to be appreciated by my audience. So, yeah, it really has a good flow to it. Like I said, you like it <laughs> progresses along real, you know, methodically and really clear. And yeah, I, I really like I really like the way you write. So, yeah, I, yeah. People are telling me some of, some of my reviews on Amazon will say stuff like, you know, I got this book last night and uh, I ended up staying up all night because I couldn't put it down once I opened it. And uh, that's just, that's hugely flattering to to hear that, you know. And, it, and like I say, it's very gratifying to uh, to know that I that I that I am reaching people and and hopefully making you know, at least a small difference out there. So I do my part, do what I can. So. Well, I appreciate it, man. This this has been a really good call. I it kind of went over, over, covered a lot of different areas and stuff. And yeah, I would like to do another call with you, and then we can maybe go into more of the Laurel Canyon, Laurel Canyon stuff. I, I think that's really interesting as well. I mean, all those connections is is pretty mind-boggling stuff, man. It's like really, really interesting stuff. And uh, yeah, no problem. I would. Uh, I'd love to. Yeah, no problem. Just uh, let me know what you. Uh you know what you have available and uh, we can set something up oh one more quick thing i'll just let you know that i i do graphic design work and stuff so if you want to <laughs> yeah if you need anything like that I'm, I'm up. my website needs work i know i can't get that all the time yeah i do website book covers whatever man so like if you want to get in contact with me on that stuff that that'd be cool you know yeah, I have people contact me quite often saying, you know, you, your website really needs some help. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know it does. It's not my top priority. You know, it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's not the prettiest site to look at. It doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. It's just, uh, but it, it gets the information out there. But, yeah, one of these days I really need to revamp it and uh, make it much more user-friendly and more, easily navigated so yeah i definitely do need to do that at some point so yeah, yeah maybe i'll look you up all right cool yeah <laughs> yeah i'm always, always looking for looking for uh freelance work and stuff so yeah that'd be great all right man well uh yeah it was a really good call appreciate it and uh hope everything uh, i appreciate that, well, thank you very much. I appreciate any any opportunity that I'm given to uh, you know get this information out here. So uh, very much appreciated, and I uh, look forward to talking to you again. Okay, good deal, man. Take care, Dave. Bye. You too. Thanks. Have a good Bye. Day.